to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law, and I'm the host of this podcast. It's a podcast which seeks to explore and explain different perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I will loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. Today I'm speaking with Kevin John Heller, who will certainly be well known to all of the academics in this area of the law and will need no introduction. But for everyone else, he is a professor at the University of Amsterdam Faculty of Law and is also cross-appointed as a professor at the Australian National University Faculty of Law. Prior to this, he taught at several other prestigious universities in several different countries, including SOAS at the University of London in England and the University of Melbourne in Australia. He is one of the founding editors of the Opinio Juris International Law Blog, and he was involved in the negotiations over the definition of the crime of aggression in the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court. He served as counsel in the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY, and is an academic member of the Dowdy Street Chambers in London. He's the author of The Nuremberg Military Tribunals and the Origins of the International Criminal Law, and The Hidden Histories of War Crimes. And he, of course, has written widely on many other areas of international law. And in addition, he has some aspects in his past that may be surprising to many, and which he reveals to us at the beginning of this episode. So in this episode, I explore with Kevin a recent article of his, not yet published, on humanitarian intervention, in which Kevin argues that not only is unilateral humanitarian intervention currently unlawful as a descriptive matter, and that it should remain so as a normative matter, but that a use of force for purposes of unilateral humanitarian intervention would also comprise an act of aggression as defined in the Rome Statute, and that the individual decision makers behind such action would be vulnerable to charges of individual criminal liability for the crime of aggression. We also discussed briefly Kevin's take on the ICC investigation into crimes committed in Afghanistan, including those potentially committed by U.S. forces, and the recent executive order of the President of the United States authorizing sanctions against the ICC and personnel involved in those investigations. I will confess at the outset that I did not do as good a job as I might have at pausing the conversation from time to time to clarify certain technical issues that might not be clear to the non-expert. But there will be some introductory explanation along with some supporting materials, as well, of course, as a draft of Kevin's article posted on the podcast website for those who may be interested. As well, just a reminder that I did go over the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict in episode one, and in that I do discuss humanitarian intervention. And so again, that may be a helpful introduction to the issues in this episode. So with that, I bring you Kevin John Heller. Kevin Heller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure to be your uh, your inaugural guinea pig. <laughs> so I thought, uh, in terms of getting started, you might tell us something about yourself, not in your formal uh, bio, which I've already sort mm-hmm. of uh, given a, a, an overview of, but something that even some of your colleagues uh, might not know about you that's kind of wild and interesting. I, uh, I don't know if it's 
wild or interesting. Um, let me try something less wild, and then you can tell me if you want something right. wilder. Um, so I think because we're having a you know a kind of a substantive conversation about issues that that I'm kind of notorious for having strong views on. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I hear the most often when I meet people for the first time. Uh, who only know me through scholarship or opinion juris or whatever, the, the most common reaction is, wow, you're a lot nicer in person than I was expecting you to be, um, <laughs> which is partially my fault, <laughs> you know, because I've, or I've mellowed over the years, but I, I still, you know, I, I write when I'm angry about something, and so I tend to, to not pull punches. But um, I, I think one of the things that people don't realize is, just how many friends I do have on the other side of the political spectrum and how some of my most intense debates are with people who I actually really, really like and get along with really well and deeply respect. Um, and there's a lot of people over the years that, that people would think that I intensely dislike and vice versa, who actually we get along really, really well. And it's not that we don't take the issue seriously, but you know, you can separate your appreciation for someone as a human from ideas that they offer that you really disagree with. So I think people would be surprised by, by how many friends I have among the, you know, uh, among the opponents. more conservative intellectual, uh, this area. Well, that's interesting. So, well, I mean, there's I can a give you another one if you want. Yeah, like, sure. I mean, I, I suppose the other one that people who are close to me know, but, you know, I do have this dark past as a television writer. Um, and I, I wrote, in Hollywood for four years between being a criminal defense attorney and my first job at the University of Georgia. So I wrote for three primetime television shows. But then the real, the real dark secret is that I, um, in the year between my last fiction writing job and my first academic job at Georgia, I worked as a challenge producer for the first two seasons of The Apprentice. So oh, wow. I'm, I'm partially responsible for the the rise of Donald Trump. Um, my team, I mean, I was lower on the totem pole, but my, our team was responsible for designing the challenges that the contestants on The Apprentice would do each week. In we literally would sit around in a room and, and think up things for them to do. And um, I only got to meet Trump once for like 30 seconds because we were based in LA and he was in New York. He was a complete jerk. Uh, he was completely, even then, almost, you know, uh, strikingly inarticulate. Uh, every word had to be written for him. And, you know, I, I feel a certain amount of guilt <laughs> over uh, the role that The Apprentice played in his rise and my role in The Apprentice. So... That's that that is wild and exciting or interesting, and I, I certainly didn't know that. Because, uh, that's that's fascinating. So you know, if uh, if you have any audio files stored away, you know, like we can. Uh, we can I do not, but I, I, gear, I guarantee you that any allegation that has been made about things he said on tape, I'm sure those tapes exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, there's any number of, of things that we could talk about because you're an expert in a number of different areas relating to sort of the laws of war broadly defined. But I thought it would be really interesting to look at this recent article that you've written. And I think, is, is it still unpublished? It's, it is. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it, it will hopefully be part of a symposium, uh, the European Journal of International Law. Um, we've just been kind of waiting, Dapo Conde putting it together. It emerges out of a conference that we had at Oxford about, I think, what, six, seven months ago. But we don't know for sure yet. 
but it's on your SSRN page and we'll put a link to yep. it on the podcast website. Uh, so the title of the piece is Genuine Unilateral Humanitarian Intervention, Another Ticking Time Bomb Scenario. So you take issue both with, from a descriptive perspective, whether unilateral humanitarian intervention is lawful, and then also argue that it's not even normatively desirable. Uh, and then I think the, the really interesting and novel part of the article is you, you make the claim that this unilateral humanitarian intervention may also be an act of aggression as defined in the Rome Statute. And, and so I think that'll be the part that most people will not have sort of thought very much about. And so we can spend a fair amount of time on that, but I think thought maybe you could just start us off with getting into the descriptively why it is you think that humanitarian intervention is, as a matter of use at bellum, unlawful. I mean, you know, it, it is the, the classic argument, and, and I, I guess it is controversial. I don't quite know why. You know, we, we do have a UN charter-based system of the prohibition of the use of force, um, and it admits of exceptions, of course, you know, Security Council authorization. But that's not what we're talking about here. Nobody questions that the Security Council can authorize a humanitarian intervention into another country, and they've certainly done it before. Um, there's, of course, consent of the territorial state, but by definition, we're not talking about the consent of the territorial state with unilateral humanitarian intervention. And then there's self-defense. Um, and I do touch on in the article you know, a couple of attempts to try to shoehorn unilateral humanitarian intervention into self-defense. Uh, my friend and who someone I have great respect for, Jens Olin, has tried to kind of argue that it is a type of collective self-defense. Um, normatively interesting. Uh, I don't think it makes uh, a compelling positivist case because you're not, collective self-defense requires the in you know the the request of another state to right. act on its behalf in self-defense and and of course when you're talking about defending a civilian population you're not talking about defending a state you're actually talking about attacking a state on the basis of the request of the people within it um, so it doesn't easily fit into any of the exceptions to the prohibition of the use of force and and I think I go you know fairly carefully but fairly quickly through through that aspect um, and then I deal with the fact and I, I completely acknowledge and I as a good positivist that of course there could be a customary exception to the prohibition of the use of force I you know I there's nothing sacrosanct about this prohibition um, but I find, and one of the reasons why I wrote the article was that I, I, I find the, the defense of the customary exception to be extremely positivistically sloppy. Um, that basically people just say, kind of reach for any use of force that is kind of even arguably humanitarian. And they say, oh, look, this is um, state practice in opinio juris in, in favor of a customary exception. And so, Although I'm not breaking any, I think, particularly new ground in the first section of the paper, the reason I wrote it is I wanted to give a very clear, systematic, analytic, and comprehensive analysis of, of whether there really is state practice in opinio juris out there in favor of the exception. And, and I think if you look at that part of the article and you go through the uses of force that I discuss, and if you look at the principles that the ICJ has articulated in the Nicaragua case about how uh, you know, we, we, we characterize state practice in opinio juris, 
there's just almost no uh, actual state practice in Impinio Juris. You, you basically have the UK. Right. <laughs> the UK, to its credit, and I, 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 even when I disagree with the state, I always admire a state that is very clear about the legal rationale for its uses of force. You know, they've had the guts to say, yep, that's why we're intervening in, in, in Syria. That's why we're intervening in Kosovo. That's why we're intervening in, you know, um, Iraq. Um, but they're really alone. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, Belgium occasionally talked about unilateral humanitarian intervention, particularly in the context of Kosovo. But then they said, oh, but by the way, this doesn't mean that it should be a precedent for a customary exception. Um, Denmark sometimes seems to be leaning toward unilateral humanitarian intervention, but certainly haven't been particularly aggressive about it. And beyond that, you have a bunch of interventions over the years from kind of the India-Pakistan uh, conflict to you know, Syria in 2018 that, again, they kind of maybe could possibly be ex post facto described as having some humanitarian aspect. But when you look at them systematically, states were not articulating. Right. unilateral humanitarian intervention. They were constantly relying on self-defense claims or consent of the territorial state or any other rationale that they could get away with for justifying the intervention. And so if you apply the basic principles articulated in Nicaragua, these things don't count as state practice or opinio juris. The state needs to act in a humanitarian way and say, we are acting because we believe that unilateral humanitarian intervention is lawful. And they don't do that. Um, at most, it's one of a laundry list of possible bases for intervention. And so, you know, to kind of just to, to, again, to kind of summarize it, it's just when you look at it from a principled positivistic way, most of what is commonly defended as being unilateral humanitarian intervention from a legal perspective is not. It's something else. As you said, the article sort of walks through I think the fairly few scholars who try to make the argument that as a, as a matter of positive law, it is lawful. I think there's a, a larger camp of people, including people like Harold Coe, who sort of acknowledge or concede that, yeah, it's probably not yet, uh, it has not yet emerged as a, a new principle of customary international law, but it's emerging. And by the way, it should, and, and that we should encourage it, and that this is a, a normatively good thing. Um, but you disagree. I mean, you, this is where you, and, and this is where I think it gets a little, a, a bit more, both interesting and controversial. I think you know because people who will entirely agree with you that it's not, uh, as a matter of positive law, uh, yet a principle or an exception to Article Two Four of the Charter. Some would say, yeah, but it, it, maybe it should be. In the article, you you turn next to the uh, the crime of aggression issue, but let's just maybe leapfrog that for a moment and talk about the normative argument. We'll come back to the to the aggression issue. Okay, so I, I agree that kind of the the more interesting and controversial aspect of the article is the claim that um, that even at the normative level, unilateral humanitarian intervention isn't desirable. Not just that it's unlawful, because we could certainly say it's unlawful, but a really good idea, as some people have. I think it's unlawful, and I think it's a really, really bad idea. And so in kind of the second part of the article, I also try to be very systematic about does unilateral humanitarian intervention work? Um, is humanitarian intervention 
the primary motivation for states that, that engage in uses of force that are often put forward as unilateral humanitarian intervention. And looking at both of those things, should we agree with those scholars who say it's a, it's a desirable thing? And, and I simply disagree. Um, it's not a particularly popular position. Um, my friend Harold Coe has literally on the pages of my own blog described me as, quote, objectively pro-slaughter in Syria. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'm objectively pro-slaughter. Um, perhaps I would be objectively pro-slaughter if you know it, humanitarian intervention in, in Syria actually worked. But again, in, the, in this part of the paper, I try to go through all of the examples that people have used of unilateral humanitarian intervention and really questioned whether they made the situation on the ground better. Um, and I think the evidence for that is extremely thin. Um, I do think we have to acknowledge, again, putting aside why the state was intervening, there have been some relatively successful unilateral humanitarian interventions. We can think about you know, East Pakistan in 1971. We can think about Uganda in 1978. Uh, certainly democratic Kampuchea, you know, Vietnam's intervention in 1978. One would have to say, again, putting aside why the states were acting the way they were, because I don't think any of them are actually motivated by primarily humanitarian concerns, but they made the, the situation on the ground better. Um, right. I think that's undeniable. It's a good thing that Khmer Rouge, you know, were overthrown by the Vietnamese in, uh, you know, in, in Cambodia. So it's not that intervention that's unilateral can't make the situation on the ground better, but notice all those examples are essentially four decades ago. Right. And if we look at all the ones that are advocated more recently, <clears throat> I think the case really falls apart. Um, think about Libya. Um, you know, even if we categorize that as a unilateral humanitarian intervention, which we shouldn't because, you know, it was authorized by the Security Council. Right. Um, they have broken Libya so badly that is it a step up from Gaddafi at the humanitarian level? I'm really not so sure. And I'm not an apologist for the Gaddafi regime, but right. I think you're very hard pressed to say that things have gotten better on the ground in Libya since Gaddafi was overthrown. Um, Syria. Again, I completely reject the idea that it was a, a unilateral humanitarian intervention, and certainly in terms of the motivation of all the states other than the UK. But has Syria gotten better? I mean, Assad is still in power. <laughs> uh, civilians are still dying left and right. Hasn't made the situation better. Kosovo, you know, there were some probably positive effects that came out of NATO's intervention in Kosovo, but at the narrow humanitarian level of protecting civilians who were there, you know, there's a vast amount of scholarship that has pointed out that, in fact, you know, the high-level bombing, the high-altitude bombing engaged in by NATO killed tens of thousands of civilians needlessly, created hundreds of thousands of refugees, and has simply made the situation in Kosovo worse. So, you know, there are, I think, stronger counter-arguments here, perhaps, than to the first part of my article, but, you know, at least... I'm encouraging us to, to try to think systematically through what it means to say that unilateral humanitarian intervention is a good thing. Right. Um, and instead of just uncritically assuming that, you know, because it happened, it, it led to improvement on the ground. Because I think, again, the evidence is quite thin in, right. in defense of that. So I guess, I mean, one of the, the possible objections might be, and this is more to the, to the argument that you make in the article itself, so as I understood the, the framework of the argument, you were saying, you, you analyze, first of all, does it even exist? 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, does unilateral intervention, uh, humanitarian intervention, as we understand it, exist? That is where there's a primary motivation is to engage in, in trying to assist the civilian population within the target state. And then you look at does it work? And for the purposes of does it work, you look at a number of these instances that you just ran through. But I guess one of the objections might be both yeah, those didn't work, but those weren't actually, as you actually point out, these were not truly real unilateral humanitarian interventions as you define it as in where the primary motivation is humanitarian. And, and, you know, so if you look at Harold Coe's recent article on humanitarian intervention, he sort of sets up this framework, right, where he suggests that, well, in order for a use of force to qualify for this ex- this new exception of humanitarian intervention, in the event that it wasn't authorized by the UN Security Council, it would nonetheless have to be authorized by some regional regional body like NATO or the Organization of American States or something uh, to give it some greater legitimacy. That that unilateral could not be unilateral in the sense of one country just simply engaging because that will suffer from the the, you know, the likelihood of pretextual use of force. And, and he then adds other criteria where, you know, the, in line with the uh, R2P principle that, that it would have to be necessary, proportionate, and so forth. And so I guess the question is, can you envision a use of force that might satisfy some rubric like that, some, some sort of framework like that, in the face of something like a genocide in Rwanda, where, yeah, maybe that would be preferable to just simply doing nothing and allowing a genocide to unfold. Um, so, you know, again, bracketing the the legal question. Um, yes. You know, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I say quite carefully in the paper that it's not impossible to imagine a, you know, a, a genu- genuinely well-motivated and genuinely effective unilateral humanitarian intervention. I wouldn't even rule it out with one state. I mean, it's, I think it's extraordinarily unlikely, <laughs> but it's possible. Um, as you say, you know, the, the more collective the intervention, the, the more likely it is, I think, to, to be legitimate, if not lawful and effective. Um, but even there, we need to be really careful for a number of reasons. We need to be careful in terms of um, assuming that just because it's collective, that it's well-motivated and effective. Um, I mean, what you're describing is essentially Kosovo. And you know, I, I reject that Kosovo was genuinely humanitarian in its aims, and I reject that it was genuinely humanitarian in its effects. So we, we have to be careful to, 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 to not over-idealize one of these uses of force. I think there are also issues in that, you know, go to really the heart of the international law project, which is, you know, when we're talking about collective intervention, it's almost always going to be collection of global North states intervening in the global South. And the fact that a whole bunch of global North states are teaming up doesn't solve that legitimacy problem for me. So there's that issue. So I think probably the, the, interventions that I am most sympathetic to, which we have never seen, but again, we could see, um, you know, I'm quite drawn to a reading of the Uniting for Peace resolution that would say the General Assembly could authorize, you know, a a collective, but unilateral in the the legal sense, humanitarian intervention. Um, It's not perfect, 
Um, obviously, as a legal issue, it, it has problems that I think that Dapo Okande has done a really nice job discussing. But from a pure legitimacy standpoint, if you could really get two thirds of the General Assembly to, uh, to agree to a resolution encouraging states to intervene against the will of the territorial state by force, you know, I, I would be hard pressed to say that that wasn't legitimate. It's sure. a question of legality, but that seems like a much better Kosovo than Kosovo itself, which is just NATO banding together to use force. So I, I would hope that insofar as people want to keep alive this idea of a truly humanitarian intervention, that they would rely on something like the, the Uniting for Peace Resolution and not, you know, coalitions of global North states that, that the U.S. puts together on, under pain of, you know, <laughs> diplomatic and political suffering if they don't go along. Right. Yeah, that's no, fair enough. So, I mean, that gets you a little bit closer down the spectrum towards Harold Coe's position, I think. Um, he, he, he walks through from, you know, obviously at the top being UN Security Council authorization, then General Assembly under the Uniting for Peace resolution type framework. And I think the other piece that obviously is necessary if one were to consider some kind of new framework like that, which I think is missing from a whole host of debates about you said, Bob, more generally is, you know, the requirement for evidence, right? So if, if you're going to make the claim that you're engaging in a humanitarian intervention, that, that there has to be real evidence provided by you know, the perpetrator in advance to, to justify the claim that this is necessary, that it is in that indeed for humanitarian purposes. And, and I mean, I think this is true for uh, the unwilling or unable doctrine. And most recently, the, the strike on Soleimani. I mean, there are right. these assertions made, but never have any, any evidence being put forth. And I think even just as a matter of of self-defense, there has to be a greater demand by the international community for users of force to provide real evidence to, to support their claim that, that a, uh, you know, that this was in response to an armed attack, that it was necessary, proportionate, and so forth. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely, completely agree. I mean, I think transparency with any part of the USAID bellum is so critical. And it's what I, why I meant what I said earlier, which is I admire the UK having the guts to right. say, this is a unilateral humanitarian intervention and we think that's legal. Because right. that allows the international community to, to really think about a potential response. It's not just throwing it in as one of seven possible rationales. And then at the level of evidence in terms of effects, you know, it's always kind of a, an ex ante assessment of whether the force will be humanitarianly effective. And I completely acknowledge that it's not necessarily clear, you know, what's going to improve the situation on the ground, but at least you have to have the, you know, you, you have the intervening States have to, put forward their case for why this is not going to be another Libya, why it's actually going to make it better, you know, and, and why they really are genuinely motivated, as you said, for, for legitimate humanitarian concerns. Because as I say in the paper, and I, I've written it more length elsewhere, you know, the idea that Syria, the, the, you know, is a, human, is a humanitarian intervention is ridiculous. I mean, all they did was try to stop chemical weapons in perfectly fine with barrel bombs killing yeah. civilians. I mean, tens of, you know, 100,000 civilians were killed before the, the West intervened, and tens of thousands have died since they stopped intervening. If it was truly humanitarian intervention, they would have put boots on the ground, and they would have taken out the Assad regime. 
Sure. Uh, but of course, they would never do that because that would lead to their own soldiers being killed. And they're not so humanitarian that they're willing to, <laughs> to tolerate photos of body bags, you know, in an election year or pre-election year going back to the American people or the British people or the French people. It would never happen. Um, so it's not truly humanitarian. It's just it's a cheap rhetoric that states use to much more often than not disguise less uh, laudatory motivations. So again, I completely agree that we have to have the case made why this is truly motivated and why it's truly likely to be effective. All right. Well, let's let's shift then to what I think is really the the novel part of the paper where you make the argument that these even genuine unilateral humanitarian interventions would constitute an act of aggression as defined and attract individual criminal liability. So take it away. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think this is probably the most controversial part of the paper. Um, I, again, I'm not completely sure why it should be, but you do have a, you know, other than the United States, this is not an argument that, that states have made, but scholars uh, are almost kind of uniformly convinced that even if unilateral humanitarian intervention is unlawful in the sense that it violates the, the UN Charter, Article 2.4, um, that certainly it isn't criminal, um, that it's not the crime of aggression, that you're not going to lock up you know, um, the prime minister of the UK for, you know, using force unilaterally in Syria. Um, yeah, putting aside jurisdictional right. issues. Um, it's all, but maybe to be said, this is all kind of an abstract discussion because the way that the crime of aggression is defined jurisdictionally at the ICC means that no one's ever going to be prosecuted for it. And certainly, you know, literally by, by, necessity, there will never be a non-state party that is prosecuted for this, because even if they committed an act of aggression on the territory of the state party, there's still no jurisdiction. You know, all non-parties are completely excluded. Um, so it's an academic discussion, but, but academics seem really committed to this idea that it can't possibly be criminal. And I don't particularly have a, a, a dog in this race. I'm not looking to, to lock up all of these leaders, but, but I was just really curious about why, as a legal matter, the scholars were so utterly convinced that this could never be the crime of aggression as defined under the Rome Statute, under the new Article 8 bis. Um, and so when I looked at the drafting history of Article 8, and when I looked at the arguments that scholars were making for why, even though it might have been a violation of the Charter, it wasn't, as the definition requires, a manifest violation of the UN Charter, I just wasn't convinced. Um, you know, there, I, I don't want to reproduce the whole argument because it actually gets quite technical. But you know, most scholars hang their hat for non-criminality on the idea that the, the, the character of unilateral humanitarian intervention isn't such that it should be considered a manifest violation of the charter. I understand why they make that argument, because they kind of have to, <laughs> in order to avoid it being a manifest violation. But then when you start getting into, okay, well, putting aside your subjective preferences, what does it mean to say that something has the character of an aggressive act? They all come to the same place, which is, oh, well, it's ambiguous <laughs> whether it's unlawful. <laughs> it's in, as Klaus Kress, my, also my dear friend, puts it, it is in a gray area. And I'm like, 
where's the gray area? I mean, we just went through a whole long laundry list that says that there's at least 133 states that have categorically and repeatedly condemned the legality of unilateral humanitarian intervention, the entire global South, and two states at most that have ever consistently argued that it was legal. Where's the gray area outside of the minds of scholars who think that it should be uh, a possibility? It just falls apart. And then when you add to that a careful look at the drafting history of Article 8 this, again, again and again, you have the United States coming up with proposals, both for the definition and then for the understandings that were adopted along with the um, Article 8 bis. You know, again and again, you have the U.S. trying to get the state's parties to adopt language that makes it clear that unilateral humanitarian intervention is not covered by aggression, and every time it fails. <laughs> I, you know, at least three times, an overwhelming majority of states' parties refused to adopt U.S. language that would have made it clear that humanitarian intervention wasn't covered. And so, ironically, I think there's almost no argument that unilateral humanitarian intervention isn't a manifest violation, whereas you can actually have a, a conversation about other controversial areas of the use of force. So for me, unwilling or unable, you know, you and I, I think, are both critical of the, the customary status of unwilling or unable. Um, I think the best reading of, you know, positivist reading is that it's not. But I would certainly not say that an unwilling or unable act of self-defense is a manifest violation of the charter. I think that is of a character that is debatable. It is a gray area. You know, we really do have to carefully weigh the state practice in Impinio Juris pro and con. But self-defense is a recognized exception. And right. unwilling or unable, we're kind of arguing it, you know, what, what, where are the limits of an exception that we do accept? With unilateral humanitarian intervention, we're not even talking about an exception. It doesn't fall into any of the recognized exceptions. It's a new exception. So if we're going to say it's not a manifest violation of the charter to use massive force against a state without its consent, I think the burden really does have to be on those who say that it's not a manifest violation to explain why and to not just rely on arguments that, well, we kind of think it's a good thing and we don't want to take it off the table. Um, so... And I, you know, Oliver Corten has basically made a similar point. I think the, the case for the for unilateral humanitarian intervention being a manifest violation is much stronger than the case for something like unwilling or unable self-defense or the use of force to protect nationals or something like that. Those are arguable. I really don't see where the argument is about unilateral humanitarian intervention given the state practice in Impinio Juris that we have. So I think the argument is kind of inescapable that, you know, even if it was within the jurisdiction of the court, I think it's extraordinarily unlikely that a prosecutor would ever pursue a genuine unilateral humanitarian intervention, um, but that it would technically satisfy the definition of aggression. And so there would be individual criminal responsibility for it. So, yeah, so I think, and this, you know, this is the Rome Statute and the international criminal law is sort of a bit outside of my, my area, but I got the sense in reading, first of all, when I read the article, I found your argument really quite persuasive, and yet I, I felt that lurking underneath... <laughs> and yet. <laughs> the, well, I think lur lurking underneath uh, the, you know, the, the position of the scholars that you're critiquing and I'm putting absolutely putting words in their mouth, but I, you get the sense that there's a, sort of this intuition that there has to be some kind of distinction, and, and it's one that goes to character. 
but you know, sort of to take the analogy, if, if, you know, there's a difference between my breaking into my neighbor's house to beat him and steal his television and my breaking into my neighbor's house to stop him beating his child and to rescue his child. Right. And, and that one of those seems morally much more culpable and therefore criminal. And since we are talking about the crime of aggression, I, I get the sense they're groping for, as you say, I mean, they, they have to hang their hat on the element of character, right? So mm -hmm. I, you might explain that there are these three different components of, of the definition, but it's the, the character is the one that they have to sort of hang on to. But I, I get the sense that the, their intuition is yet that there has to be some qualitative difference right. between these two acts. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I understand <laughs> the motivation. Maybe have even a little bit of sympathy for it. But a couple of things have to be said. First, at the level of kind of the use ad bellum generally, as you know as well as I do, Motive is not a traditional consideration for the legitimacy of a use of force. Again, that's more at the kind of collective state action level. Obviously, if you were ever to prosecute a high-ranking government official for his or her responsibility for an act of aggression that was based on unilateral humanitarian intervention, um, you would definitely have to prove the mens rea of the defendant. But Again, if you look at the drafting history of the aggression definition, once again, the U.S. tried to propose language, and I, 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 can, I can read the language. They proposed requiring the prosecution to prove that the defendant acted with, quote, a specific aggressive intent or purpose coupled with the aim of long-term subjugation or annexation. In other words, they wanted as a, an absence of mens rea to be having a good motivation for committing an act of aggression. Right. And once again, that was overwhelmingly rejected by the states that were drafting or in adopting the aggression amendments. So merely at a level of positive law, I don't see how you can make the argument. Now, there is a much more difficult discussion about whether an individual defendant, as opposed to a state, whether an individual defendant might be able to argue necessity as a defense to a completed act of aggression. I, I don't actually have the arguments kind of in my head enough to really go through it. But I, I, again, I think if you do a close analysis of what necessity means at the individual level and under the Rome statute, I think you, you'll be hard pressed to shoehorn this kind of idea that we were, yes, we invaded another country and killed tens of thousands of their soldiers, but we did it for a really good reason. I, I think the necessity defense doesn't fit easily right. Right. with that. So maybe the Rome statute was poorly drafted. Maybe Article 8 bis, you know, maybe the U.S. was right, um, that there should have been language in there that, that carved out an exception for, you know, admittedly rare, genuine unilateral humanitarian intervention, but it's not there. And so even if you think it's a good idea, you still have to grapple with the fact that the actual text of the amendments doesn't seem to allow it. Yeah. So, I, you know, it is, I, I found it really interesting because as I said, this is the, the you know, I have somewhat purposely <clears throat> avoided getting into the weeds of, of the Rome statute, but I was fascinated with the account of no the drafting shame in history. <laughs> but the, you know, the, the fact that the drafting history reflected that they made very little distinction between, you know, the use ad bellum, which really does not care at all about motive. And here you're talking about a crime of aggression. And yet again, they 
sort of set motive aside, um, yeah. which I thought was really interesting. So I think both states are very distrustful of, you know, claims to be acting for good reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and, and collective or individual. I mean, that's, it's not, I don't think it's shocking that most states are like, no, we're not going to allow you to avoid criminal responsibility by arguing, oh, no, but I had a really good reason. I really yeah. wanted to help people. I mean, when do they not claim that? You know? Right. And it doesn't help that it was the United States uh, that was exactly. <laughs> submitting these, this language, which, you know, it has a, a a history of pretextual use of force, but precisely. So before I ask you quickly to say a few words about the ICC, let me could just wrap this up by returning to the title, which brings in the ticking time bomb hypothetical, which I thought was really interesting. You come back to it in the conclusion. So how does the ticking time bomb hypothetical apply to this? Well, I mean, so if you think about the ticking time bomb scenario, the ticking time bomb scenario is offering an extraordinarily unlikely set of events, not impossible, but an extraordinarily unlikely set of events to justify creating an exception to one of the few categorical prohibitions in international law. I mean, we can, almost every prohibition has its exceptions. The prohibition against torture is not one of them. No justification is acceptable for torture ever. That's the great accomplishment of the torture convention. The ticking time bomb scenario is designed to try to give us a reason to dilute that prohibition. Oh, but what about this situation? So if you were to allow the ticking time bomb scenario to dilute the prohibition, then you're probably going to open the door to a whole bunch of non-ticking time bomb scenarios being passed off as ticking time bombs, and you're not actually going to ever have the ticking time bomb scenario itself because it's so unlikely. I think literally exactly the same argument applies to unilateral humanitarian intervention. The prohibition of the use of force, although not without its exceptions, is categorical. It is one of the few categorical prohibitions, not quite as categorical as torture, but certainly admits of fewer exceptions than most. Um, it is widely considered to be a peremptory norm of international law, use Kogan's. The idea that we would conjure a set of events, genuine unilateral humanitarian intervention, that is so unlikely, again, not impossible, but so unlikely in order to further dilute one of the few truly categorical prohibitions in international law, to me is just perverse. You're probably not going to get any genuine unilateral humanitarian interventions if you allow it because they are so unlikely um, and so unlikely to work. Um, but you are almost certainly going to open the door to a whole bunch of more pernicious uses of force that states are simply going to try to pass off as unilateral humanitarian intervention. And I have a nice quote from Brownlee where he, he makes that point that we shouldn't be diluting central prohibitions in order to allow sets of facts that are extremely unlikely. Um, so I just don't think that it's worth opening the door. And yes, I can imagine a situation in which there is truly a genuine unilateral humanitarian intervention. If it is so clear that it was motivated for the right reasons and, and didn't just break the country, but actually did make the situation better, I don't think that the prosecutor of the ICC would ever bring charges. And frankly, I don't think there would be any consequences for the state internationally. The, hopefully they would say, you violated the law, but also hopefully they would say is, you know, we're going to give you a pass because this is one of the few situations in which you really did the right thing. To me, 
although that's kind of troubling as a good positivist, that is still much better than actually diluting this prohibition by invoking a set of facts that are, are, are 99 times out of 100 going to be pretextual. So that's why I thought that analogy makes a lot of sense in this okay. context. So you sort of get to the same position as the Israeli Supreme Court in, in the torture case. Yeah. You, know, you don't get ex-ante permission, but there may be some circumstance in which you might have a defense. Yeah. And again, I'm not completely comfortable with that. <laughs> I am a pretty good positivist, but, but I'm certainly less <laughs> uncomfortable with that than actually changing the prohibition. Right. Well, listen, we're running short on time, but I, I did want to ask you before we close out uh, what your thoughts are. I mean, I know you've been writing on opinion yours and elsewhere about the ICC prosecutor's uh, investigation into American and other states' conduct in Afghanistan. And I thought you could say a few words about both that case and more recently the, uh, the American sanctions against mm -hmm. the ICC. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I am certainly a strong supporter of the ICC insofar as it wants to investigate in Afghanistan. Um, I was arguing a decade ago, literally, <laughs> that Afghanistan, you know, should have been the the first non-African situation that the the ICC formally investigated. It didn't turn out to be, but it, you know, but they eventually got around to it after I think what twelve years of a preliminary examination. Obviously, the pretrial chamber decision refusing to authorize it as not being in the interest of justice was a catastrophically bad decision, uh, and one that I think the U.S. can quite rightly at the time have claimed victory for. In fact, Mike Pompeo did claim victory for it. So, you know, thank God the appeals chamber not only you know rejected the pretrial chamber's argument, but also just authorized the investigation. They had to do that. They had to reaffirm the independence of the ICC. From a pragmatic, practical level, you know, I'm I'm skeptical about what the Afghanistan investigation will lead to. I know I certainly think the idea that a U.S. service member or member of the CIA or political leader is going to face charges anytime soon is nonsensical. Um, putting aside any political consideration whatsoever, if you are Fatou Ben Souda or her yet to be named successor, uh, you're a rational prosecutor, you're not going to charge Americans first. Um, and you shouldn't, because we, you know, as bad as some of the US behavior has been, I think we can all agree that the Taliban are responsible for more serious crimes than the CIA. The Taliban crimes are also going to be much more easy to investigate. Not easy, but easier to investigate than the actions of the CIA in Bagram or the Salt Pit or wherever. So, you know, the investigation is much more likely going to focus on the Taliban and then the Afghan national forces before the U.S. It may be years before you ever see charges against an American. I, I won't say it's impossible. It, it may be that charges are eventually brought not against a, a Pompeo or a Donald Trump or even a Gina Haspel for that matter. But I could see, you know, the CIA station chief in Afghanistan during the worst excesses, you know, actually facing charges. So it's not paranoid to say that an American will will, will at some point uh, be targeted by the court. But it's a long way down the road. Um, and in, even if you think that's true, and or even if you think that, that tomorrow there's going to be charges against an American, 
it is still really shocking and and and, and frankly disturbing the level of hostility that the Trump administration has shown. They have gone well beyond even the most problematic excesses of the Bush administration in its first term. Prohibiting cooperation and denouncing the court is one thing. You know, revoking Fatou Bensouda's visa to go do UN business is quite another. Threatening to revoke the visas of family members <laughs> of court personnel uh, who, who might be involved in the Afghanistan investigation, that's unprecedented. The idea that you would freeze the assets of court personnel and anybody who might possibly assist the ICC's investigation in Afghanistan. That could include victims, as many people who know a lot more about the executive order than I, I do have pointed out. You know, a victim that actually provides testimony could find their assets frozen. And although we don't know to what extent the Trump administration is going to actually make good on these sanctions, um, and there have been posted just security that quite nicely point out that this doesn't do it, this just authorizes it, they still have to actually pull the trigger, but they could cripple the court for a very long time if they wanted to. If you're a European bank or, you know, uh, uh, American NGO and the Trump administration really wants to sanction you and freeze your assets, well, you're probably going to choose your continued survival over the health of the ICC's Afghanistan investigation. Um, they could make it impossible for these institutions and organizations to work with the court in the future. And that would be truly problematic. You know, to use a tool that is designed to punish human rights transgressors, to punish people who are defending human rights is really fundamentally perverse. Um, and just so incredibly disturbing and makes people who like me, who are deeply critical of the ICC, want to defend the ICC <laughs> from the rooftops because, you know, <laughs> it's just so disproportionate and so uncalled for. Well, that's a good note to, to close on. But before I let you go, I would like you to recommend to our listeners three other books or articles or pieces. I got of two books and an article. All right. Shoot. <laughs> So, um, well, the first one I have not yet read, but I am incredibly excited about it. Uh, it's a book entitled The Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II, written by Francine Hirsch, who is, I think, a historian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My friend Beth Van Skak has a great uh, book review of it. She obviously got an advanced copy because it's not quite out yet. But it's, you know, as someone who's written a book about Nuremberg era war crimes trials, it is so incredibly exciting to see a revisionist history in the good sense that, that fills in the gaps about the Soviets. They were kind of written out of the good guy story of World War II in general, and they've certainly been cast extremely negatively even in terms of the war crimes trials. And this is really going to fundamentally challenge our understanding of, of, of how Nuremberg came about. Um, so that's an Oxford book. I think it's out in a, almost any day now. The second one, I'm, I sound like a shill for OUP, but um, the second one isn't out yet. It will be out, I think, in September. And it's called The War Lawyers by Craig mm -hmm. Jones. Um, I haven't read the book, but I have read the dissertation that it was based on. And it's really a study of the role of military lawyers in, um, you know, in, particularly targeting, but kind of in conflict in general. And it's really a historical study of U.S. JAGs and IDF military lawyers and the roles that they've played. And it goes, there's a fantastic chapter on the Vietnam War. Uh, it goes all the way through the present. Um, it's really, the dissertation was amazing. 
Um, and I think the book is going to be amazing as well. And there really isn't very much out there like it. And then the third and final one is an article uh, written by a, a dear friend of mine named Mosin Alatar, who is an associate professor at the University of Warwick. Uh, and it's called Twail, A Paradox Within a Paradox. And it was published by um, the International Community Law Review about a month ago. And I think Mosin is one of kind of the, the most interesting and best Twail scholars out there, really focuses on international economic law. And this piece is really a, a kind of a meta piece, trying to put Twail in its larger intellectual context and trace evolutions in Twail that show that it's actually a much more uh, fractured <laughs> uh, theoretical approach to international law than is usually um, assumed. Um, and it will be kind of the centerpiece of a book that he's writing for OUP on Twail as an intellectual phenomenon that I also will hopefully get to spruik, you know, when it comes out in a year or a year and a half. But this, this article is a really nice introduction to Mosin's work um, and also a really nice introduction to Twail as a, as a critical project. So I, I would highly recommend that one as well. That's great. Uh, that, those all sound sound uh, really fascinating. You you'll, you will love the war lawyers. Yeah, particular. no, I, I I think the, the the Soviet take on the Nuremberg trials as well sounds fascinating. Yeah. So, well, listen, Kevin, thank you so much for for being here. We are going to take credit for breaking the news that you were once <laughs> working on The Apprentice. <laughs> we, <laughs> okay. we, will, we will not hold you accountable for all that followed, but <laughs> thank but you. Listen, I appreciate thanks. that too. Thank you so much. And let us know when the, the article on humanitarian intervention is published so we can, we can post that on the, uh, the website as well. And, we'll do. Uh, you know, and I look forward to, to um, you know, promoting your new podcast because I think it really does fill a, an important niche in the podcast world. And you're obviously an expert on these subjects. And I imagine that you'll have many, probably much better conversations with people down the road. Well, this has been great. So thanks so much, Kevin. My pleasure, Craig. We'll talk soon. And thanks to all of you for listening to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Do look for us on Twitter at Jib Jab Podcast and as well for our website, jibjabpodcast.com. And tune in soon for the next episode of Jib Jab, when I'll be speaking with Adil Haq of Rutgers University School of Law about the UN anniversary and the state of the use ad bellum today. Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast, is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The music is a track called Grim by Dream Machine and is used on a Creative Commons license. Thank you and stay safe.